You know, I love how different people can look at the exact same thing in such different ways. We experience this all the time, don't we? Two different people can experience the same event. Two different people can hear the same thing, listen to the same song, go to the same movie, eat the same food, enjoy the same company, or maybe disenjoy the same company, whatever it might be, right? And have very different takes or experiences on the same thing. I think church is that way. How about you? Here's what I want you to do, a little bit of a mental exercise today. I want you to think of one or two descriptor words that come to mind when you hear the word church. I'm not saying this church specifically, I'm just talking church in general, though certainly you can include FOF in that mix, but what do you think of when you hear the word church? And can I add this? Please be honest, all right? Here's what I want you to do. Turn to someone like before you, behind you, next to you, whatever, have a great conversation with yourself out loud, I don't care. But share with someone just very briefly, take 30 seconds, and just share very honestly what are maybe a word or two or three words that come to mind for you. What do you think of when you think of the word church? Go. All right, now here's something I want to share with you, a perspective I'd like to give you. When you look at those ancient creeds, right, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, those ancient statements of faith, they had a tack on church too. And of all the things that they could have spent their time, of all the descriptor words that they could have used to describe church, which I bet even in this room alone, piles of them, right? Look at how the Nicene Creed goes about describing the church. One, holy, Catholic, Catholic. And I've just got to ask, did any of you here even use any of those words? One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. That's not how I think about church. And other than this freak over here, that's, <laughs> it's my bet that that's not how you think about church. It is, these are not the words that describe church for me. And like, if I was sitting down with someone who, who maybe never had the opportunity, like, hey, what's a church? Like, like this ever happens. But it could. Hey, man, like, like, what's a church? I heard about this thing called church. What is it? Let me tell you, it's holy, man. It is so holy. It is so apostolic. It's crazy. We don't talk about church that way. And these next few weeks, because those ancient creeds seem to take a lot of time talking about the church, we're going to kind of dig into going, why is that so significant too? We're going to be talking about church today and the next couple of weeks. And here's the weird idea. Today we're taking the first word out of that list. The church is one. And it's a weird idea because let's face it, you look around, right? And there's all different kinds of churches. And they can seem like a lot of things, but I'll tell you this, they don't really seem like they're one. Do they? There's black churches, white churches, Hispanic churches, and churches that gather around every ethnicity. And have you ever noticed how they like to stay separate? on their racial lines. There's megachurches, microchurches, mid-sized churches, and house churches. 
and each of them have their own very distinct flavor, values, and ways of doing things. There's American churches, Canadian churches, Filipino churches, African churches, and churches meeting in every country and language group around the globe. There's modern churches and traditional churches. There's new churches. There's old churches. There's churches that meet in city cathedrals. Churches that meet in steepled, white-framed buildings out on the prairie. Churches that meet in converted box stores and old loser shopping malls in the suburbs. There are Lutheran churches, Catholic churches, Baptist churches, Anglican churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Anabaptist churches, and all kinds of non-denominational churches kind of sprinkling in the mix too. And let's not forget our brothers like Coptic churches, Chaldean churches, Assyrian churches, and then you have Russian Orthodox churches and Ukrainian Orthodox churches that are constituting people who claim to be one even though they are trying to kill each other. You could see the same thing in India, in Pakistan, and other areas around the world, United States, Afghanistan, Iraq, and throughout history, so much, many, more. There are over 350,000 churches in the United States alone. Now, let me frame that for you. There are 14,000 McDonald's franchises in the United States alone. When you think of how many McDonald's you see, 14,000 compared to 350,000 churches, it's like take every McDonald's you see and multiply it by 25. And that's how many churches you have just in the U.S. Staggering, isn't it? There are over 45,000 denominations worldwide. I looked up here in McHenry. There are 19 churches here in McHenry, not county, city, alone, at least according to Google. There's Holy Apostles, Alliance Bible Church, the Chapel McHenry, the McHenry Evangelical Free Church, Lighthouse, First United Methodist, First Baptist. First Baptist is then mentioned again. Is it a Google error? Or is this group saying we're First Baptist? And this group going, no, we're First Baptist. No, we're First Baptist. No, we're First Baptist. I don't know. I just know it's listed twice. You have the Orchard, St. Mary, St. Pat's, St. Paul Episcopal, Faith Presbyterian, Maranatha Assembly of God, Shepherd of the Hills, Ignatia, 
Casa de Vida, Iglesia, Un Nuevo Ejercito. Did I say that right? You don't know. <laughs> McHenry Full Gospel. And that doesn't even include like a church like Shiloh, which is like what? 1.1 miles south of us on Crystal Lake Road. Not all of them get along. Not all of them seem to be that interested in connecting with each other. The people who attend these various churches often don't give a second thought to those attending those churches simultaneously. Do you? Many times the churches seem more interested in tearing each other down than building each other up. Most seem more noticed and interested for their distinctives and their differences than what they hold in common. Most feel tribal. You can even look at our own church, Fellowship of Faith, which could be described as a divorce situation. Once part of a church, one body, but that's separated and is now two. And of course, this doesn't even get into looking inside the doors of every local church. Fellowship of Faith included. Where you find people with, shall we say to put it kindly, a diversity of opinions? Cliques and factions. Either vying for their special interests and agendas. Cold shouldering, ignoring others in their midst. Churches are known for places of gossip, aren't they? And none are immune. And into the mix, the apostles, or Nicene Creed, I should say, has the audacity to say the church is one. You have that moment, it's like, why do you keep using that word? I don't think it means what you think it means. The very first thing it chooses to say is that the church is one. Several years ago, I was having lunch with a, a young man who was a professed atheist. He actually reached out to me via cold call. I don't fully know what was going on in his life that was motivating this, but, but I picked up that he was reaching out to many local church leaders, angry and wanting to have a debate. Now I feed on that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I'm like, dude, brother, let's do it, man. Come on, let's get lunch, let's, let's do it. I met with him and he told me, I can't tell you how many churches I called and not one of them called me back. Now I don't say that for this, but just as a picture of what's out there. And we sat down and we had lunch and I'll never forget something that he said. He's like, you know, you Christians, the problem is I can't even get a straight answer from you about what it means to be a Christian or how to become one. 
Because it seems like every church, every denomination, every flavor, if you will, has its own unique way of putting it. And they are not all in agreement. They are not all one. It's bad enough when we who consider ourselves the people of God who are supposed to be one sense this un-oneness, but how much so the world around us who does not know Jesus and sees the division and strife and separation that exists among this thing that is supposed to be the Christian church, going, they can't even get their own act together. And into this, the Apostles' Creed says they're one. I think of Acts chapter 2. It's really a vision statement for us at Fellowship of Faith where it said, all the believers were together and had everything in common. I often marvel at those words and I'm fully convinced that it probably only existed in Acts chapter 2 for five minutes (laughs) and has never been realized again. There's a couple of quotes I want to share with you that have been pretty meaningful to me and just... Maybe they will be to you too. The first is by a guy named Wolfgang Simpson, who should be quoted for his first name alone, (laughs) who writes, the church as we know it is preventing the church as God wants it. Think of a youth leader I knew named Michael Bozeman, who said, when it comes to the church at large, we seem to come up with mountains of tripe just to satisfy ourselves. And here the Apostles' Creed says, if there's anything we can say about the church, it's this. The church is one. And I want to know what that means because clearly the church is not one. Clearly it is not one. And I am convinced of this. The people who wrote these creeds, they were not blind and they were not dumb. They were fully aware of the same things that we are fully aware of today and arguably even more so. So what are they getting at when it says the church is one? Well, let me share a couple of things that are striking me that I believe stand behind this weird, outlandish, audacious statement of faith. And here's the first. It's an aspiration. It is an aspiration. It's something we are supposed to be. So therefore, strive to be it. Pretending that we are one and telling ourselves that we are one When we are not one, does nobody any good. But to put a statement on a wall, a target on the wall, and say God wants us to be one and to strive for it, well, that suddenly takes something from a fairy tale to a noble goal. I love what Jesus says. It's in John chapter 17. You read this on your own sometime, but I'm going to share a snippet here. Contextualize. Jesus has just celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room. It is Jesus' last supper because literally it is the last time he is going to eat before he is arrested, condemned, tortured, and executed. 
and he knows it. He meets with his disciples. They share the Passover meal. He contextualizes the Passover meal saying, I am the new Passover. The lamb that was slaughtered for ancient Egypt, the blood that you painted on the door house. No, I am that new body and blood. My body will be slaughtered. My blood will be shed. And in that there is a new covenant God is making with you. A new exodus, if you will. And after he's just trying to get him to get it, teaching him, giving his final will in testament, he prays. He prays for himself. He goes on to pray for his disciples. Not all disciples of space and time, no. I mean, those, those, those brothers who were eaten with him right there. But then he does something weird, crazy, outlandish. He prays for you. Not by name, but by category. He goes on to pray for you. Or as Jesus will put it, all believers who will come in his name. Here's a snippet of what he said. Can you read that out loud together as one? That's pretty impressive. We actually did it together, didn't we? Look what he prays for. That all who will come to believe in me, that all of them may be one. This was Jesus' dream. In a way, it almost strikes me maybe like a mom or a dad or a grandparent on their deathbed and the family is there gathering around them and the family is estranged. Their last living hope before they come to breathe their final breath is that those who are estranged would reconcile, would come together in unity and would live out the dream of being truly together as one family. Again, I can tell you firsthand, I've been to many bedsides. And of all the things that someone who is dying can pray, prayers like that often rank supreme. It's Jesus' dream. It's his vision that they may be one that you and all of our brothers and sisters around the globe Maybe one. As one as Jesus is with the Father, that we might be with him 
and with each other. That's a crazy dream. And I think about that atheist young man that I had the privilege of having lunch with. And I think of this last line. Because then the, no, the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The church is one, is an aspiration. It is what we're supposed to be. So it's what we strive to be. But it's more than an aspiration. It's also a reality. Because Jesus says something else. And Paul picks up on it. And I want to give you just one line of an amazing chapter today. Where Paul writes, you are the body of Christ. And each of you is a part of it. Now, I've got good news or bad news for you right now. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, I'm intentionally using different phrases. If you are one who has put your hope and faith in Christ, you're stuck with others who have done the same thing. Even the ones you don't like. Even the ones who make you mad. Even the ones who don't think the same way you think. Even the ones who stink. You're part of it. Because you know what the church is at some fundamental level? It's that. It is the body of Christ. No, not the flesh in blood body born of Mary that walked to earth and was nailed to a cross, but in some kind of, I don't know, mystical way, strange way, weird way, supernatural way. The Bible talks about this again and again. You are united to him. You are conjoined. We are a conjoined body to Jesus, and you are a part of it. We're stuck with each other. And there's no getting around it if you're with Jesus. How about that for a picture of eternity for you? <laughs> right? It's not just aspiration, it's reality. So body, let's get along, because you know what's miserable? when your body fights against your body. Have you ever met people who have those like rare diseases where their body actually fights against their own body? They would do anything for that to be taken away. The gift that my body might actually function well with itself and get along. But much more common than that is this. ourselves up. Go ahead and slap yourself in the face today. All of you now, come on. Do it hard. Let's hear some, let's hear some smack. You won't, yeah, you'll do it there all day and night, won't you? You won't do it. You won't do it. Why won't you do it? 
because it hurts. I know it's not because you feel stupid because we get you doing all kinds of things every week that are stupid, you know? You won't do it. Oh, okay. Because it hurts. And yet how many churches are hell-bent on beating themselves up and slapping themselves in the face? You're the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it, so... Shouldn't we stop punching ourselves in the face, slapping ourselves in the face, biting our lip, chewing off our tongues, gnawing on our fingers, kicking ourselves in the shins, doing whatever other masochistic things you do in dark places that no one talks, you know? Because the reality is we are joined to Christ. We are body parts of his head. Do you know that that's the original term of the word member? Do you know that the word member or membership is a biblically original word. From what everyone has viewed and been able to survey in ancient literature, the first time the word exists is by the Apostle Paul. He invented it. And when he invented it, he did not mean what we often mean today is that I belong to some kind of club. No, he meant it like members of your body, body parts, body pieces. Think like horror, think like Poe, think like Stephen King. The dripping members were hanging in the closet. You know, it's just like we're body parts. God is a grave digger. He goes around looking to construct a body and he starts digging up corpses going, I want that hand, I want that eye, I want that heart, I want that kidney. And some kind of freakish Frankenstein thing, he he sews us all together and breathes us with new life. That's what the church is. No wonder it's so scary and ugly at times. We're literally Frankenstein. Okay, I know some of you are getting technical. We're Frankenstein's monster. Give it up. But are you with me? Are you with me? We shouldn't be surprised that we look like a decrepit corpse, an old rag. But God chose us and has sown us into him. That's what oneness is, so let's figure out how to live the reality together. Are you with me? It's Jesus' dream. And if it's Jesus' dream, man, it's got to be a good one, don't you think? This is the stuff that I think about. This is the stuff. <laughs> Didn't mean to pause there, you know? <laughs> but it is, as a leader of a local expression of the body of Christ, this is the stuff that I think about and find myself dreaming about and sometimes losing sleep about. What does it look like to be one? How do we live out the aspiration of the reality of that which we are? Well, I got good news for you. The Bible has a whole lot to say on what it looks like. So much of the bulk of the New Testament are the early apostles writing to local expressions or congregations of the body of Christ who are one in Jesus but clearly not living as one and trying to figure out what it means to be one and going, let me give you some technique. Because sometimes we just need some technique, don't we? I'm going to share three passages with you today and one final quote. Let me give these to you this morning. 
Here's the first. How do you do it? Here's how you do it. Read it together. You submit. To who? Yeah. I didn't actually anticipate an answer on that. Was, but that's cool. To the person sitting in front of you. To the person sitting behind you. To the person sitting next to you. To the person you like and to the person you don't like. To the person who thinks the way you do and the person who doesn't think the way you do. And yes, even to the person who stinks. Submit to one another because they're so amazing, because they're so awesome, because you love them so much. No, far be it. No, because you love Jesus. You do it out of reverence for him. Submitting to someone that you don't like is one of the most difficult things that you can imagine. Submitting to someone you do like can be one of the most difficult things you can imagine. And you do it. Because you say, Lord Jesus, you called me to. And even though, uh, that hand, that eye, that foot, that kidney, that pancreas over there that I can't stand, out of reverence to you, I'll submit, because I promise you this, not even in the days of Acts chapter 2 has there ever been a gathering of believers where everyone thought the same way, valued the same way, and lived the same way. Oneness, by that definition, has never existed, not even among Adam and Eve. I will argue it doesn't even exist among the Father and the Son. Lord, take this cup from me, Jesus said, but not my will, yours be done. That seems like competing desires to me but marked by submission. And what would the church look like? Not just our local congregation, not just McHenry, not just McHenry County, but globally, if we were more driven to submit to one another. Oh, don't hear me wrong. Not sacrificing allegiance and loyalty to Christ. Not diminishing distinctives as though they're unimportant. Not pretending we all just get along, but an honesty coming together going, I think this and you think that. And if it isn't a matter of truth, they're right and wrong. You know what? Maybe I'll submit to you today out of reverence to him. That's where unity is born. It's fascinating that this line in 21 is followed by 22. I love how numbers work that way. And in 22, Paul launches into a discussion of how husbands and wives can live as one. And do you know what he heads it with? Submit to one another. Even when there is someone that you love beyond love, they will drive you nuts, won't they? Because you have two different people. I'm not giving like true life exposures of my marriage here, all right? I'm just giggling out there, but, but it's true. Yeah, I drive you nuts, don't I, Tina? Yeah, and you do me too, babe. <laughs> Love you. And your spouse does too. How do you make it work? She values stupid things. <laughs> things that are just wrong. 
If she could only see my way, life would be so good. Oh, come on, you know it. You know it, you've thought it. You have it with your spouse too. How do two very different people, and we are very different people, and you and your spouse are too. How do two very different people truly become one? (laughs) Here's a technique. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And how much more for the body of Christ too. Are you with me? Passage number two. Oh, that one's long. Read it out loud together, would you please? Can you imagine what the body of Christ would look like if all we did was follow those six simple verses? You could spend a lifetime meditating on those six verses and trying to put those six verses into action and it would not be a wasted life. It's interesting to me that the most common place this passage is read is at weddings. It competes with 1 Corinthians 13. Vince Vaughn and Luke Wilson actually had a bet about it. Sadly, Luke Wilson lost. It's not just a picture for marriage. It's written to a church, to a Colossian church, to a McHenry church, to God's church. How do you get oneness? How do you strive towards oneness? How does oneness become more of a reality? Isn't this the seedbed of so much of it? And can't we look at a passage like this and when we find ourselves angry at someone in the church, angry at a church, disillusioned in a church, frustrated in a church, cold in our hearts toward a church, doesn't it often, more often than not, root out of a deficiency right here? Strive for this. You are the church. It's not written to just some organization as it exists. It's written to you. Each and every one of you. Paul says, you do this. And maybe Jesus' dream becomes more of a seen reality. Here's number three. This one's from Jesus, and this one has teeth. Read it out loud together, please. How many weeks do people come to church to worship? 
with something against their brother or sister. How many of you commune today? With unforgiveness towards someone or lack of reconciliation or efforts towards it, towards someone in your heart. There's nothing mysterious in what Jesus has to say here. It's as clear as day. Leave. Not because you're not welcome here. Because there's something so vitally important that you have to do first. Go make it right. Because I tell you, the stage in these walls are not the church. The person who has something against you is. And so striving for that has to reign supreme. I want to leave you with one final quote today. It's from a, a writer and author, a New Testament scholar. His name is uh, D.A. Carson. Came across this in a book called Unoffendable. That'd be a great descriptor for a church or a Christian, wouldn't it? Unoffendable. Look what he writes in it. I'm going to read this one. If you're so excited that you want to join me, that's fine, but I got it, all right? Ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not, be, not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Isn't that amazing? That almost gets inside me. I love that. Church would be so much easier if it wasn't for those people. But that's not Jesus' vision. He prayed something very different, that they would be one father. And that by their unity, the world would come to see that you have loved them. Isn't that what we're doing here? The mission we have to let a world know that God loves them. For Jesus, that was intimately tied to an idea of oneness. That is the creedal dream. One church. So I'm going to invite someone to stage here today. 
who has been doing some pretty cool one church activity. Two people, actually. Um, I just want you to meet them. You hear a little bit about the work they're doing, all right? Uh, Steve, come on up. And Keith, uh, come on up too. Would you welcome Steve and uh, Keith? All right. You two go there. I'm going to go here. How's that sound? Push that stand down so they can see your face, all right? You have recently been on Honduras. Why don't you introduce yourselves first and tell us a little bit about the trip you were just on. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Steve Framas. I've been up here a couple times in the last month, but uh, we were down in Honduras and Ciudad España specifically um, a couple weeks ago, and we were doing a little bit of mission, a little bit of visitation of Jennifer Olson, who's working down there, and and getting to know the people of Ciudad España. I'm Keith Olson. I'm Jennifer Olson's father, um, and I'm Happy to be at this location of the one church. <laughs> and thank you for coming today. And, and truly, th- thank you for giving birth to, well, you didn't give birth to Jennifer, but thank you for being a part of that process. And the, uh, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, she's our fourth child. So if it were me giving birth, we would have never no, had her. It. Yeah, yeah, one and done. One and done. You know, what I'd like you to do is you... Uh, you get to live Honduras, you got to experience Honduras firsthand, and of course the church is in Honduras, speaking a different language, a different culture, a different people, different challenges in various ways. What's the church like in Honduras? So from a church standpoint, from Jen's ministry, it's, it's very communal, right? So and Tell them, not Yeah, me. sorry, why am I talking yeah. to you? You got this whole wing uh, so. over there that likes to see your lovely face, ah, all right? Yeah. Thank you. So, from Jen's standpoint, it's really about community. So she shows church um, much like over dinner. So she has, not only does she have people come to her mission house and not only does she have Bible studies, but she, she, she does it in community. She is part of the community. So church for her looks like interacting with the people day to day and showing them God's love. Um, that is her standard mission. Uh, in the community itself, they have several churches, but for me, I think church is her communal work. Yeah, a, a big part of it is, and we've been on a lot of mission trips as a family, but when you go on mission trips, you're typically in a compound within the community. Jen is in the community. There is no compound. She is just present right in the middle of it. That's so cool. And. What are some of the unique challenges that you see the church facing there, but also some of the common challenges that we're probably facing here? So for Ciudad España, it's it's a refugee town. It was brought up 20 years ago because of a hurricane. And the reality is it was never built with any sort of infrastructure. It was built with, with the idea of temporary housing. There is no means of uh, making money in that town. You have to go outside of town to do so. And so if you're a single mother with, with children, you are, you're at the mercy of however uh, that money is coming in. So the, for people who are productive, they find something they can do. So whether they're seamstress, they find a way to gather fruits and sell it to the, the local community, or they go out of t- town to do the work. Unfortunately for the kids, they, they don't have a lot of direction. The school system there is very poor, and so they, they look to other alternatives to find a way to make money to help support their families, which usually ends up in gang and other illegal activity. And really basic needs. We take so much for granted. We, we are a very spoiled people here in the U.S. Uh, 
Um, if, if you're not taking care of their immediate needs of water and food and shelter, they're one of the last things they're thinking about is Jesus. So trying to just cover some of those basic needs, and once you do that, you've got that availability, the presence to start talking about Jesus. Briefly, tell me about personally the connection that you just sense with these believers who don't even speak the same language you do? So or, yeah, what was nice yeah. is Jen has really developed, over the last nine years there, she's really developed a, a very solid community of youth that are behind her and her mission, which is, which is really good. So in community, we were able to meet a couple of Brian's, a Kevin, a Curly, I don't remember Curly's first name, to be honest. But, but in that interaction, we tried to speak Spanish, and it's, it's really about connectivity and, and the glorification of God through these processes. So for me, it, it was, the people were fantastic. They wanted to help Jen. They knew what Jen was doing. And she also gives back to the community. It's an amazing sort of, it was great for me to meet those folks. I have some of them on one of those WhatsApp apps. And you know, I try to keep in contact because really the whole aspect of being, it's relational. You know, you can't just post on Facebook to make people believe in Jesus, right? You have to have a personal personal um, conversation with them. And so for me, that was meeting all those guys and, and just trying to get them to know me was, was really inspirational just to see how these kids have rose up above what they, you know, what their current circumstances are. I mean, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, you know, that community, that fellowship, one was not used as a word. <laughs> um, but the, it is. I mean, it's amazing the, the difference in language, how you can still communicate and how you can truly tell the, the Christianity on both sides, even w with the lack of ability to, to communicate. You know, this is not a new touch point for you. But it was at some point. You, your daughter, moved there. Steve, it came through other means, and, and through it, connection has been had. How do you personally live out a oneness with these believers that have now become a part of your life? So really, for me, the oneness is about prayer and, and contact, right? So. Uh, Part of the relational aspect of that is letting them know that we are here, that we do pray for them, that there is a, a God in this world that is working towards their benefit. Um, and for me, it's, it's keeping in contact in prayer for the most part. And then just really talking about, for, in this instance, you know, Ciudad España is one town of many, many, many mission areas, and I was fortunate enough to be connected to that. But as one, one world, one religion, it's everywhere, right? So, and, and really the only way you get to um, experience that, and for me, this was my first mission ever. I've been a supporter of Jens forever, but I've never made it down. And so getting a feel for what the life is daily is, is helpful as well, because it gives you a little bit better perspective as to why people are doing what they're doing down there and how, how hard it is to get the love of Christ into them because of the circumstances that make other things more important. So for me, it's, it, that is eye-opening as well. It's made me a better disciple of the idea of you know, helping these people, but also a better disciple of my own community in the same manner, because we have those same problems here. Yeah, yeah that support is, is so critical. Prayers, um, just the other missionaries that are within Honduras, uh, to be able to have that, that connection, that support. So um, whether it's prayers, whether it's just 
communicating online, it is so important that, that she's aware that she's got that support. Yeah, when you feel alone, one in the wrong sense of the term. It's so great to know that there's people that are one with you, isn't it? Thank you for sharing today. Thank you for coming on stage. Can you thank them maybe one more time? Keith, thank you. If you'd like to hear more about what's going on in Honduras, brothers and sisters in Christ there, go to the Connect Center after the service today. And uh, Steve will be there. You could chat with him or Keith or, uh, or get more info if you'd like. I'm going to invite you to rise at this point. We're going we're gonna to go out with a little bit of worship before we call an end to our service this morning. And as the band comes up and plugs in, I'll simply leave you with this. May the God who loves you who sent his son to die for you. May he bless you and keep you and bring you together in unity. May he impress that on your heart. May he stir it in your soul. May you see a connectivity to something so much bigger than yourself or this campus. And through you, may the world see that in Jesus there is some strange kind of oneness. May you live that dream.